Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamario, Global Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips Executive Search. Specializing in global board level and executive search, my job is also to connect you with worldwide experts, thought leaders, entrepreneurs and executives in all things supply chain. It is my pleasure to have with us today, BJ Singh. He joined DKSH as Vice President Global Business Development for the Healthcare Business Unit in July 2015 and was designated Global Head of the Business Unit as of July 2017. He has 24 years of experience in the healthcare industry, um, having worked between 2004 to 2015 uh, in different senior positions at Novartis, uh, the leading global Swiss healthcare company. Prior to that, uh, BJ worked for 11 years in various positions for Eli Lilly in Asia, United States, as well as for the Uh, as well as for two other global audit companies. He has lived and worked across four continents and has over 15 years work experience in the healthcare field across Asia. He holds a Bachelor of Business Administration from Simon Fraser University, Canada, and a Master's Degree in Business Administration from Stanford University, California. BJ, a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Radu. Really happy to be with you. Super. So tell us, I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about DKSH and what does DKSH do in the first place? Because I think um, whilst a lot of people know it, and especially in the healthcare field, there's some of our listeners that, that might be wondering uh, a little bit about the business model and what the company does. Sure. So DKSH started over 150 years ago, started as a traditional trading company. Uh, there were uh, four different leaders, Mr. Ditha, Mr. Keller, Mr. Sieber, Mr. Hegner. Uh, over the decades, uh, the company became a specialized service provider, building relationships with, uh, with international as well as local clients to grow their business. And that's how we coined this new um, uh, industry, which we call market expansion services. Our capillary network uh, distribution is uh, very, very strong, especially in Southeast Asia. That's a fundamental pillar of our service offering. Uh, and then beyond this fundament, this foundation, if you'd like, we've built a very strong sales and marketing capability. Uh, we also have added on to that a variety of value-added services, such as regulatory, um, uh, consignment management for me- medical devices, um, uh, market research, patient solutions, hospital solutions, a variety. This is really unique compared to our competitors because we take our clients' products to the next level, uh, getting them to customers, directly to the patients, but also providing access to pharmaceutical companies, OTC companies, consumer health, medical device, uh, and we can take them you know, to the forefront. Out of over 10,000 professionals we have in healthcare, uh, about half of them are in sales and marketing. Uh, so uh, we have essentially one of the largest sales and marketing engines across Asia. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's quite an impressive number because, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, as you rightfully said, not a, lot of, uh, not a lot of any type of companies boast with that kind of number of people and, and particularly in sales. Um, so if, if we had to, because you talk, touched a little bit about, you know, how you help uh, healthcare companies expand in Asia, but let's say uh, and it's it's a it's a question that i think uh, is is relevant why would they use dksh instead of opening their own distribution marketing sales channel beyond the the obvious uh, reasons but i just want to ask you the question great 
Look, I think there are three key reasons why healthcare companies come to us. Uh, first is what I call customer intimacy. All right, we allow customer uh, clients to focus on their core competence, which is their product. They understand their product better than anybody else. Uh, we focus on knowing the local markets, understanding the customers, understanding the route to market. Uh, we have unique insights to that, and we could reach the right customer with the right message, right pricing, uh, right retail location. So that level of intimacy is what we can afford. I think the second is the scale and uh, distribution capabilities that DKSH can bring to the table. It's simply enormous and it's hard to build. The fixed costs that are associated with the warehousing distribution and then creating this capillary uh, transport structure as well as the sales and marketing are not easy to replicate. We've been around 150 years. Uh, we've built that strategic presence. We've built that scale, that market knowledge. And quite often you need quality. You need to understand the ISO standards. You need to understand the regulatory standards. <clears throat> and even for local distributors, they find that very hard to keep up. We can essentially have the scale to transmit that across all the markets in Asia. I think the third and last, uh, but certainly not least, is a degree of flexibility. I mean, that means a client can come and pick and choose between various models uh, and based on the portfolio they want, the services they want. So some want a full-fledged, what we call full agency model, where we take over everything, and others are happy uh, with us just taking, um, let's say, one part of their portfolio or one element of their channel, or even just simply helping them do a market entry analysis. So we're really flexible uh, in terms of the services we can provide and the way that we can um, uh, tailor those to the client's needs. Understood. So that's, 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 an, that's an important point to make. And I think it's uh... Um, it kind of leads us into the the next question that I, I had prepared is like maybe you can share one or two of the, the most successful case studies uh, that that you've you've done for your clients and that would you know would really bring practicality to to the message. Sure. So let me share uh, uh, two with you. Um, one is of a company that had already um, uh, been very present in Asia and needed help, and somebody that was quite new coming into Asia. So in, in 2014, a very large multinational pharma company, household name, uh, introduced a, a prescription drug into the Hong Kong market. Um, it had a really good and significant clinical benefit, but it was categorized as a self-finance item in, in Hong Kong. So essentially, the government hospitals did not uh, cover it. It needed to get uh, purchased at the retail. Um, in the first two years after the introduction of the drug, you know, part of the sales and distribution were carried out by another party, and the sales results just were not satisfying to the client. Um, in 2015, the company approached us and asked us to take over their trade sales activities at the pharmacy level. Uh, they reached out to us because we had a good track record, uh, like I said, a broad reach, a great standing long uh, relationships with the pharmacies. So what we did is, you know, we, we knew that we had to go beyond order taking. This was still a relatively new drug, and we knew that we had to educate um, the pharmacy, and we also knew we had to really um, expand the reach 
uh, and increase the trade channel penetration. So our sales specialists use their therapeutic knowledge to convince trade pharmacies about the product's benefits. Uh, They also closely monitored the competition, uh, provided market intelligence to the client, proposed new uh, trade marketing ideas, and then advised the client on the market penetration strategy. Give you an example. The DKSH trade sales team collected stock information on all customers by month, calculated the real sales uh, quantity to patients, and then the client market team uh, could evaluate the performance of their activities. So as a result of this, um, with the DKSH trade uh, sales team working together with the client's marketing team, uh, we not only managed to beat the target, but we penetrated up to 95% of uh, the, the trade channels, so the, the drugstores yeah. in Hong Kong. The partnership led to a fourfold sales increase in the first year and a twofold sales increase wow. in the second year. So essentially, uh, due to that strong and successful cooperation, market share of the drug, in a, in a challenging market, Hong Kong continues to increase. Uh, and in fact, in, at the end of 2017, the client was so happy that they carved out the distribution of that product from the existing distributor and, and gave it to, to DKSH. Yes, yes. So that's one example of, yes. you know, a client that's what we call established in Asia, chose us for a particular expertise and some of the results that we delivered. For yes, yes. No, very good, uh, very good example. And I think uh, that's a key point to kind of emphasize and back to the to the um, to the sharing that you do offer different ranges of, of um, uh, services uh, in terms of the the deep sales and trade experience that you have and uh, and the distribution model that you have. I think that allows you quite a quite a large uh, pool data driven. Um, uh, ability to make decisions based on data that is not exactly easy to get. And, and we mentioned Hong Kong. Hong Kong is still a fairly developed, uh, I mean, it's a very developed uh, place, but, uh, you know, some of the economies in Southeast Asia is much more, are much more embryonic in terms of that. So, um, so it's even, even more relevant and important. Um, I have one more example that I could give you then, which is you, you mentioned the embryonic. So, Here's uh, an example of uh, a company that was new to Asia, uh, looking to expand. So uh, a European manufacturer of uh, pharmaceutical products saw uh, the business opportunity for for Asia and the growing demand that's here. Uh, They didn't have a presence in the region and they needed a partner to assess the market potential and highlight also regulatory challenges in markets like Cambodia, Laos. Uh, but uh, Myanmar, but also more developed markets like Malaysia, Singapore, and Korea. So they picked those markets, and it was easier to go to one company who could cover all those markets. Um, so essentially, they asked us to do that market assessment. Uh, our experts developed a comprehensive uh, market attractiveness and feasibility study for them. We showed them exactly through what you mentioned, the data that we have, the sales potential per country, uh, per channel. We we did a competitor analysis for them. Uh, the data was taken from DKSH Insights, which is a proprietary online tool uh, that, that we have based on the collaboration with several hundred clients and over 160,000 healthcare customers in Asia. Uh, we also have a team of over 70 regulatory professionals 
from the healthcare industry, and they quickly provided the client with an overview of all the documents, the information, the requirements to register their product. Um, we gave them also the duration, how long it would take, you know, how much it would cost to register the products, and then gave them advice on some changes that might be coming up in, in regulation in each of those countries that could influence the registration process. Um, we provide a very clear process for doing this, standardized reporting formats, so that, you know, any country, they see the information the same way. Um, and as I said, the regional coordination means they, they have a one-stop shop. Uh, in this case, we exceeded the client's expectations in providing a market analysis and, and business cases. Uh, that it helped them make, you know, uh, a decision of which markets they wanted to enter. Um, they really appreciated uh, the collaboration and actually chose DKSH to um, to use as uh, the entry mm-hmm. partner. Yes, um, and, and didn't go to all of the markets, didn't go to all of the channels, but uh, that clearly helped them make the right decision in terms of their own return on investment. Yes, um, and also, I mean, I think what is important to what is important to kind of reinforce for our listeners that are outside of Southeast Asia, maybe, um, is that uh, particularly in South and actually in Asia, the markets are very, very different from one another. The regulations are incredibly different from one another. Sometimes the bureaucracy is is extremely tedious for some of the for some of the markets. So that's not an easy. At all, it's not at all an easy feast to to handle. Um, so, so again, having a point of consolidation can help a lot. And and this brings me to the to the next question in terms of what what do you see as some of the key challenges that your clients face in Asia as compared to Europe or or US maybe. The US uh, is a really fluid market. Um, healthcare costs are putting really high pressure on the budgets there, um, and you see the same in Europe. Uh, there's a major discussion in these countries about the value of healthcare. Asia, on the other hand, is a continent with still a fast-growing population and an increased willingness to pay for, for quality. I think that gives a lot of opportunities for healthcare companies, and it builds a very vibrant business environment. Um, unlike highly developed markets where you have a lot of data, a lot of insights, Healthcare leaders in Asia need to rely a bit more on intuition and experience, particularly in the more emerging uh, frontier markets. They have to be very clever, very agile in understanding patients' motivations to buy out of pocket. Um, And often this requires making decisions without having all the data or minimal data at hand. Um, I think it's challenging, but it's also an opportunity for leaders to make an impact. Um, And also, I'd say you can find yourself with a lot more responsibility and accountability in your hands than in a Western environment where you have specialists uh, involved in every different role. Um, So I think that way, lots of opportunities, uh, but lack of data means a lot more challenge. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And and are there some main differences between the, the healthcare needs of the population Uh, here in Asia as compared to other parts of the world? Well, I mentioned and touched already affordability and accessibility challenges, you know, drive a lot the need for for patient services here. Um, Also, Asia's, you know, vast geography, uh, many cases you have countries which are groups of islands, give you a much more complicated route to market. Um, And then you have very, very elongated countries like Vietnam, 
where you know you have to understand how you can provide, um, uh, let's say, medicines or, or, or products that require cold box solutions uh, within mm-hmm. within 24 hours, um, and where you can keep depots along the way to help you. So I think those require very innovative solutions for temperature coal, uh, control, like cool box motorbikes, et cetera, that we utilize. So there definitely are some differences that uh, are in Asia versus others. I think um, if you look at healthcare needs and wants, I think you'll see certain diseases are quite different in Asia. Uh, you see a lot more um, uh, GI diseases, gastro- uh, gastrointestinal you see liver diseases as being more. So you need to understand the um, incidence and prevalence of diseases, which may be different than the West. Um, also, I think um, you need to keep in mind that in Asia, um, the healthcare professional is, is still very, very important. And Asian c- consumers are more reliant and more respectful for these, uh, uh, the advice of these healthcare uh, service providers. They will still get onto Google. They'll still check information, um, but um, uh, the healthcare professional plays a larger role, uh, particularly the pharmacist. Lots of patients in Asia will go to the pharmacist for their diagnosis, not necessarily to their doctor. That means the pharmacist is a very, very important part of the healthcare ecosystem in uh, in Asia. A big part of that is because there just aren't enough doctors. Uh, in the population. I think, as I mentioned before, you have to keep in mind that um, people still pay out of pocket in many, many of these countries. And even even the countries that have reimbursement, they don't have their whole population reimbursed. So this changes people's attitudes in, in how they buy and what they buy. And that's why you start to see sachets, part, you know, they don't buy the full box sometimes. You see smaller packet sizes, uh, and you see this in many countries, and, and these are the types of things that you have to keep in mind coming from reimbursed Western yes, markets. Yes, yeah. yes. No, absolutely. And that's a very, I mean, that's a very good example. And I think it's, uh, uh, it's extremely, um, uh, it's extremely relevant to the, to the place and the economies that, that we're in. It's kind of the same as the reason why in, uh, I mean, a little bit of a, of a lateral example, but it's the same why in, uh, in Southeast Asia, a lot of the countries, even for things like, uh, consumer goods, right? Like detergent or whatever is the same principle where they don't buy in actually the big boxes, they buy in smaller because it's out of pocket. And then price is a very important consideration, of course. You're right. Um, what do you see as some of the factors driving growth for the industry in the region? I mean, apart from, of course, the obvious one, population is growing. Uh, you know, obviously there's levels of incomes that are growing, but, uh, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about it. Yeah. So I think you touched on it. I mean, growing middle class is, is a key one. What we see is as countries, you know, the middle class grows and become more affluent, they start to demand and expect higher quality health care. Um, Asia Pacific, you know, currently accounts for about 24% of, of global consumer spending. Uh, we'll see that rise to, you know, over 50% uh, in the coming decade. Uh, and that's more than Europe and North America put together, um, you know, from a, a purchasing parity situation. And, you know, Asia's middle class is going to rise from, from 570 million people um, uh, up to, you know, 3 billion people, they say. So we'll see what the numbers pan out to be. But essentially, that rise of that middle class um, is going to be a huge, huge factor. Uh, I think increasing 
um, inter-Asian trade. Uh, we see what's happening more recently um, in terms of uh, the way the U.S. is, is um, approaching trade discussions. And uh, I think that just gives more and more opportunity for Asian countries to, um, to trade with one another. You're starting to see some local heroes as well. So Korean companies in biotechnology, um, certainly Chinese companies, Indian companies, and even within Southeast Asia, you see some local hero companies, um, some of which are clients of ours. Um, and uh, they are looking to expand beyond their home market and get into adjacent market. Um, and, and finally, I'd say there's um, an imminent trend towards outsourcing, um, especially where they're challenging market conditions. They, you know, companies focus in on their own core competence, whether that's R&D, uh, whether that's production, uh, that's global marketing, and then they look to service providers like us to expand the market for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, I know that uh, I know that, uh, and you shared that uh, DKSH uh, market expansion services for pharmaceuticals involves regulatory approvals, involves uh, help around the licensing, which I think is is a very important uh, consideration and service, uh, given the the nature of the business, the differences between countries. So, can you tell tell us more a little bit about that, and and um, you know, especially given the complexity that each country requires. Sure. So, you know, regulatory is one of the, the value-added uh, services in our portfolio. It gets a lot of um, attention from our clients. I was mentioning to you, we have over 70 uh, regulatory professionals. Um, we provide registration and, and regulatory consulting services uh, for food supplements, cosmetics, and healthcare products and, and devices. Um, our regulatory people, you know, maintain ongoing liaisons with uh, the regulatory authorities. They manage our clients' dossiers, process a uh, large number of market authorizations on behalf of our clients, and, and then safeguard their interests. And I, I shared with you earlier how, um, you know, we had done a full market entry study, and a big part of that market entry study involves the regulatory uh, aspects because. That means there's a two or three year entry uh, barrier or entry timeline into a country, and uh, you know that gives sometimes the, the the clients some time to establish themselves in that country and, and build some relationships as they um, as they enter the country. Yeah. So each country has their own requirements. In some cases, uh, uh, they have specific um, uh, temperature requirements, temperature controls, certain. Um, uh, requirements for storage, certain requirements for the way the studies are done. Uh, some will just look at uh, U.S. or EU um, dossiers and say, just give us a, a certificate of product approval and that's fine. Others will require local studies. Those could be bioequivalent mm-hmm. studies, etc. And And it's important that the client understand um, what are the requirements and then also what types of um, uh, countries that they can reference for those. Yes, yes. Um, and are, they, are you looking, because you, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the pellet of services uh, that you're already offering, but are there any other value-added services that you look to expand into or to uh, to grow? Yeah, so I think um, there are clearly three other areas where we see um, opportunities beyond the regulatory uh, one is um, analytics and insights. We're seeing more and more need 
for clients to understand what's going on using the data that we've talked about, doing predictive analytics, um, and really understanding uh, what the white spaces are. Where are they doing well? What customers could they expand further to? How are they doing relative to uh, the competition? And how are they doing relative to the category? Um, I think those types of information are particularly lacking in medical device and OTC. In pharma, there is uh, some information, but usually not that granular. And I think that's where we can provide a lot of uh, value. I think the second area is patient solutions. So uh, at one time, it was just about a field um, uh, army of sales reps to go out. Uh, now that more and more companies are launching specialty products, what we see is um, those prices sometimes are a little bit less affordable or uh, patients drop off. And uh, the value of getting those patients onto therapy and keeping them on therapy is very very high. Um, the clients look and they're mindful that they don't want uh, the channel, meaning the pharmacist, the hospital, to take all the value if they offer promotion schemes that will allow benefit to the patients in terms of affordability. So those are ways that we can step in and ensure that the benefit of the promotion goes directly to the patient. Um, there's education done and we have uh, armies of nurses in some countries that can go and help uh, patients uh, understand how to use the therapy, understand the disease, answer their questions, um, and, and, and also, you know, monitor adherence. So those are uh, ways that we can, we can add value. Um, beyond that, clients have uh, a prohibition of keeping patient information yeah. uh, in their own um, uh, venues, uh, because of uh, patient confidentiality reasons. So, again, that's a service we could provide. And then finally, what we call hospital solutions. So uh, hospitals themselves uh, may find it uh, very difficult to measure, uh, to, to manage, should I say, the, the stocks in their, in their own hospital um, from a variety of clients. Some of them want to keep consignment in the hospital mm. um, because they want uh, the doctors and healthcare professionals to have ready access. The hospitals themselves don't want to keep uh, purchase the inventory. So that consignment inventory, which belongs to the client, is sitting at the hospital. Who manages it? Um, how is it replenished? How do we know what's being used? those kind of services we can provide mm. and, and the level of intimacy of then really knowing and understanding certain um, segments of the hospital, I think becomes a key value proposition for clients as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, if we had to look into a little bit deeper into the different countries in, in Asia, are there certain countries in particular where you see the most growth? I think Indochina particularly now, uh, its time has come. Um, in, in these markets, the segment of population that can afford quality health care is maybe 3% to 5%. Um, if this segment grows by just even 1% to 2% per year, it's going to drive growth tremendously. I think the other thing that I see is governments are becoming more and more aware that they need to step up their game. Um, and provide more healthcare services and coverage. Uh, like I said earlier, more and more uh, patients in Asia have to pay out of pocket. 
Um, but now many, many countries, uh, including some of the ones I've mentioned, offer some kind of insurance, public or private. And, and there's generally a more enlightened view about healthcare needs and services. And that if you don't protect your population, that's really your big asset. Uh, and otherwise, they're also just going to keep saving um, for that rainy day fund. And that saving is going to depress consumption. So there is, I think, a more enlightened view about about that. And it's happening much more in countries like Indochina, but others as well. I think the more mature markets are driven by innovation. So if you see an innovation in a certain category, you will see explosive growth. Um, mm. And uh, you'll especially see it if that innovation really improves standard of care. You see that in oncology, uh, where even in Hong Kong, you know, typically Hong Kong is a, a very uh, low single digit growth, but in certain cat- categories of oncology, you're seeing dramatic growth driven by innovation. Yes, yes. Um, very good, uh, very good example. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's uh, we we are here today in Singapore, and I think there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of sweet spots. Uh, I know, I know from uh, from our collaboration as well with the Singapore government that they have invested heavily into healthcare, healthcare innovation, life sciences innovation, and R and D here in Singapore. In Korea, obviously, is a is a big hub for that as well. But as as you as you rightfully mentioned, also there's there's up and coming uh, local heroes, right? Um, that are also quite. Uh, um, I mean, not not to be discounted. And I think there's pockets of uh, of um, of activity. So very interesting comment uh, in terms of the you know the, the fact that an innovative product can have an extremely high return on investment and extremely high growth and aggressive growth. Um, and that kind of uh, marks the, the last question that I had in terms of the more industry-focused questions. And now if we had to move a little bit to the, uh, to what we do, right, to, to, uh, to the skills, the talent, the, 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 the needs that the market uh, requires in terms of people, in terms of what type of uh, skills they need to have to, to grow businesses, what do you find hardest to, to find in, in, in Asia? Yeah, good question. I think uh, someone who can cross boundaries and, and work in complexity um, and lead a team through that complexity is probably the most challenging uh, attribute to find because it, it requires uh, someone who can have crucial conversations, uh, difficult discussions across boundaries, uh, which can particularly be challenging in Asia where um, relationships, harmony uh, are very important. And um, again, that takes a certain skill um, that, that's, that's difficult to find. Um, I think uh, it, it's hard to find people who are both keen to grow and very tech friendly. You would say that that should be very easy among um, the young generation. They're very comfortable using technology. Um, yes, that's true. Uh, at the same time, Retaining them becomes the hard part. So um, keeping them um, interested uh, is is also very challenging. So um, and, and then those that are maybe a bit older uh, that are interested in staying and retaining uh, their ability to pick up technology, you know, uh, uh, grow and contribute in terms of uh, uh, changing and learning new skills becomes a challenge then. Um, and then finally, I would say communication. And I'm not here talking about language but I'm uh, or English, but I'm talking about um, 
getting people to understand the big picture, the why, uh, and then the what, and then the how. Uh, quite often the conversation in many parts of Asia goes directly to the how um, and doesn't yet win over people's hearts and minds of why do we need to do this? What's the context in which it needs to be done? So effective communication um, in that sense, again, not just language, is something that's 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 a challenge. Yes, yes, and and, and if if we had to talk a, lot, a little bit about hard skills, so that's because I mean some of the areas the DKSH um, has a strong expertise in are very specific, from regulatory to compliance to um, to all of that. Others, uh, I mean, obviously you have a distribution model. There's a, um, uh, I mean you offer distribution services as well. Agency, sales, yeah. marketing, are there certain hard skills that you find very difficult to, to get as well? Yeah, so look, in the sales and marketing arena, I think there is uh, a number of people who have the skills. Probably two areas where I'd say it's, it's very difficult to find people. One is in supply chain with expertise in healthcare. Um, there are certainly many individuals who are coming in from a client perspective of um, supply chain. On ours, we are the service provider. And from that, it's a whole host of different skills required, particularly in a very regulated environment. So we find it pretty uh, easy to find supply chain professionals who come from unregulated environments or working in retail or working in uh, large warehouses or distribution, but not very easy to find people with experience in a regulated environment such as healthcare. I think the second probably is the complexity in finance. Um, my CFO likes to, to joke with me uh, because I come from Big Pharma and says, you know, in finance, uh, in Big Pharma, you, you write one invoice to your distributor and that's it, a month. Um, in DKSH, you're dealing with tens of thousands of invoices. And so to manage that level of com complexity, the write-offs, the accruals, the price adjustments, uh, and, and, and to manage that very well um, becomes a huge challenge. So I think the complexity that you see in, in, in a service provider in these technical areas of logistics and, and warehousing, distribution, and finance are particularly hard uh skills to find yes yes and particularly i mean coming coming back and just to bring it to uh, to the practicality uh, again in dksh you probably deal with thousands and thousands of distributors and points of distribution hospital uh retail points uh, guardians of the world the watsons of the world and so on and so forth so it's a, it's a different uh, a much different ball game uh, than than uh, I mean I think the example you gave is, is spot on than one big pharma who has one point of contact which is you <laughs> and then uh, then has a lot less complexity I mean that's why you get paid at the end of the day and that's your advantage um, um, but um, but yeah, yeah I can imagine that finding people that can deal with that is not an easy task especially that because there's not so many people like yourselves that are doing this correct at least in Asia I mean then you have to go other parts of the world be that Middle East Europe. North America, I think the advantage is everybody realizes Asia is, a, you know, still the up and coming region, uh, still a very exciting place to work. So I, I think there's a lot of attractiveness and draw. Um, and I think we can certainly use talent who who uh, who we can learn from. Yeah. 
And and when you're recruiting for your uh, for your senior leadership team, right, your 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 executive team, given the dynamic environment that we live in, what are some of the most uh, important leadership attributes you look for? I look for a mixture of hunger and humility. Um, hunger because there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, you can't afford to be complacent. One of our mottos, leadership principles in uh, DKSH is stay hungry. Uh, we know clients demand and look to us to treat their business as if it's our own. You know, the moment we slip up, we know there's somebody else out there to grab it. So uh, staying hungry is key. I think the humility is to come in and ask good questions, to seek to understand rather than think that you have all the answers. Uh, I think it's good to always be questioning, uh, to have some doubt um, and, and to wonder. Um, I also look for a tolerance for ambiguity, something that I learned back in business school when I took a course about Pacific Asia is how important it is to understand that in, in many parts of Asia, you don't always get a clear answer. Um, you don't always have the data and you have to make a decision under uncertainty about what's going to happen. Um, regulations right now in Vietnam are still quite uncertain but we need to make decisions in terms of how we move forward. Um, we can't just wait. So in that case, you need to be able to have a certain tolerance for ambiguity and make the best decisions that you can, understand which no-regret moves you can make and which ones sometimes you just have to make a decision one way um, and put some assumptions down and go. Yeah, yeah. Um and 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 then I think you you personally have had a very interesting interesting journey, right? Because uh, you transitioned from a from a healthcare company from many years in the healthcare industry to DKSH, which is a, which is a, of course it's a, it's a bit of a different model. Tell us a little bit. How was that for you? What were some of your key learnings, key takeaways? Yeah, thanks. So look, I, I as you mentioned, I worked twenty two years in big pharma, uh, two big companies. I worked in four continents. I had a chance to work in Europe uh, and North America for a short while and Africa for two years, which was fascinating. But but the predominant part of my career, as you mentioned, has been in Asia. And that's really where my heart is. It was definitely, um, you know, an element of exciting uh, excitement moving over to an area where I thought there was a huge commercial opportunity. Many years ago, I saw that commercial outsourcing and, and services in Asia was only going to grow. And as more and more companies um, realize that they can't invest in every area themselves, uh, there is an um, interest and a proclivity to look at partnerships. And it's very interesting that more and more um, clients have created global organizations of procurement around services, uh, value-added services, commercial outsourcing, because they are thinking much more around, around outsourcing. So for me personally, I saw that it was a new area. It was an area that the, the world was going to go to. And in Asia, it certainly was an opportunity. I think, look, there was also a bit of fear. Um, there were parts of the job I didn't know anything about. I'm, I'm a sales and marketing guy. I, you know, lead teams. I don't know anything about warehousing and distribution, logistics, etc. Um, so to to understand that was was quite a challenge. Um, I started off in business development. Uh, I loved meeting people, 
So that was easy. Uh, luckily, I had a network in Asia, and that helped. Um, but I didn't know a lot about the intricacies of, of working on contracts, for example. So that was an area I needed to work on. I think, you know, let's face it, um, you know, a client, uh, the, the level of prestige is there sometimes coming in as a service provider. I think you see it also. Uh, you have great clients to work with who treat, treat you like partners and you have clients who, who unfortunately don't. And I think part of it is then really having the self-confidence, the self-esteem um, to understand that you put value, you know, you, you add value into this healthcare system, uh, that any company can't do it all and that you need them, but they need you. Um, and I think once you get centered on that, it's, it's great. Uh, but I've got to say at the outset coming from some blue chip companies, um, not that DKSH is not, uh, but certainly, um, uh, that was a little bit of a transition in the beginning. Um, so again, I say the main learning is, you know, it doesn't matter which side you're on, client, provider, uh, you got to look at the value you add. And, and I think in, in a sense, it taught, taught me to look a lot more holistically. Uh, I look now much more at the balance sheet than I ever did when I was working in a pharma company, because I have to be very, very mindful about working capital. Um, um, many, many times I take the risk purchasing inventory when I pay clients, when I receive, I didn't need to think about that at all. Hardly when I was, was in a large pharma company, uh, I need to be thinking about margins much more deeply because the P and L in, um, in a service provider is very, very different than in a pharma company. So I think it's taught, taught me a lot. It's taught me to, to live leaner, um, and to think more, uh, aggressively, more entrepreneurially, and uh, in a more agile way. Mm-hmm. Great. No, thanks for the sharing. And and kind of our last uh, last question to wrap it up. If you were to if you were to share one piece of advice to somebody that's just graduating and you know wanting to achieve a successful career in a, in an MNC, what would it be? Well, uh, I, you know, it's a very personal question because I've got three kids: a twenty three year old who's graduated last year, a twenty one year old who's going to um, graduate in a year and a 19 year old starting university in a couple months. So, um, it's, I'll, I'll share with you what essentially I tell them, which is essentially just focus on learning. Um, you know, when you start, just get in there. Don't worry so much about what your title is, how much you get paid. Um, and don't worry about, you know, is this what I was brought into this world to do? Just find yourself something you enjoy and learn. And, you know, maybe three years from now, you'll do that. Maybe three years from now, you'll be off doing something else. You'll be back in college. I mean, realize that career is a journey. You know, if I look at my own first job coming right out of Simon Fraser University at 21, 22, I was selling financial products. I learned a lot. I built some confidence. I learned some personal financial planning as well, which I still use. So really, there's there's learning in everything you do. Um, I think it just builds who you are, and and who you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, I mean, I, I want to probe a little bit a little bit further in terms of um, 
um, also navigating within complex organizations, right? Because uh, I mean, some some in MNCs is is one thing. So, in uh, the bulk of your experience has been in MNCs, and you've made it to the to the pinnacle, right? Are there certain I don't I don't know how to call it principles or or key uh, yeah key thoughts that you would you would follow? Yeah, look, I, all I can say is what's worked for me, and um, I think anybody who knows me would say. I'm a very passionate individual, whether it's the football team I love, my kids, my company, I'm super passionate about it. So find something that you're passionate about and then do it. If you're not passionate about it, get out of there because it's going to show. I think point number one, I think number two, be authentic. And what do I mean by be authentic? Be who you are. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to be in, in somebody's face if you don't agree with them, but, um, and it doesn't mean just be truthful, but, but there's only one of you. There's only one of Radu. There's only one of BJ in this world. Um, that's, that's a very special thing. So be true to yourself. And, um, if something doesn't sit right with you, um, there's probably a reason for that. You might ask some questions. Why? And if it really doesn't sit right for you, then you've got to be right and be be open about it. Um, if something is not going right, get up and, and speak. Um, and then I would say take ownership. You know, I, I always believe if the ball is on the ground and nobody's picking it up, go pick it up. Um, uh, I've always hated that expression of it's not my job. Um I see that. I still see that in, in many companies and uh, in many situations. And, and to me, that's a tragedy. Um, if you really have that passion, uh, you'll you'll pick up the ball. Uh, you can't do it every time because that will just create chaos. But I think get out there, pick it up, solve the problem, and then go back into the organization and say, well, you know, why is it that I had to pick up the ball? What can we do? And realize that... Um, a lot of the problems that occur in companies are systems problems. They're not people problems. They're not about somebody being bad all the time. And I think if we as leaders look and say, what went wrong in the system that that this happened, we'll often come to a conclusion um, that's different than just blaming individuals. So um, that's some of the things that I've looked looked into and and some of the principles that, that have held me. Um, in 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 my life so far. Mm, super, great sharing. Well, BJ, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the information, the examples, the case studies, the personal uh, lessons shared, and uh, and thank you for joining us. And good luck uh, in the further growth of DKSH in the region. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamaru.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest uh, articles as well as future guests for the podcast and if you have any suggestions or any other idea please feel free to write to me i respond to all and also please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other c-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us stay tuned